All right, I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to Jeremiah 5. Remembering faith. As we've walked through the book of Jeremiah thus far together, we've seen a bit of a roller coaster, much of judgment, but much of mercy as well. It's going to be a question asked this evening of faith, elements of recognition of the fear of the Lord, playing very much off of what we've seen already. Last week in Jeremiah 4, the call went out that they would circumcise their hearts, that they would set themselves apart, that being the nation of Judah, unto the Lord. The call in verse 14 to wash their hearts from wickedness that they may be saved. The desire in God's heart that they would be cleansed. We pick up very much with this this evening. And as we're going to attempt again to get through an entire chapter, we'll jump right in. Verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 5, we read this. God speaking, He says, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. And though they say, The Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. As we might expect, we're in generally the same message to the nation. The concepts which we studied last time find some manner of continuance in today's message. God says to the people, run to and throw throw throughout, there we go, Jerusalem. Go throughout Jerusalem. Search high and search low. See if you can find any man that executes judgment, that seeks peace, any man that regards the word of the Lord, right? The word that God has been saying time and again, the word that has been going forth again and again. See if you can find any man. He says, and if any man can be found, I will pardon this city. A couple of thoughts on this. First, we would presume that Jeremiah is in the city, right? That presuming Jeremiah to be a man of obedience and a man of godliness means either God is counting any man but the messenger, or God is being hyperbolic here. He is using an exaggeration to show how few within the city actually love and care for the Word of God. How few, even those that would say they love God, actually regard His message. I lend myself actually toward the first idea that God was truly at a point where there were none in the city outside of Jeremiah himself who, hearing the message of the Lord, truly regarded it. This concept that God says, if you can find those that are true within the city, I will pardon it, is one that is not necessarily foreign to Scripture. The concept that God pardons the guilty on behalf of the righteous is not foreign to Scripture. The concept that there is a point where God, even in spite of the righteous, cannot pardon the city is not foreign to Scripture either. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, we read this. Son of man, this was a, a term regularly given to Ezekiel. When the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it and will break the staff of the bread thereof and will send famine upon it and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, 
They should not deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Uh, the prophecy that we see in Ezekiel is to the same nation and really at the same time. If you recall, as we've studied this before and we'll mention it again, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were generally speaking contemporaries. Ezekiel, Daniel was taken in the first deportation which Jeremiah will write about later on in the book. Jeremiah precedes them in ministry. Ezekiel would be much younger than Jeremiah. Daniel would be much younger than Jeremiah. But they were ministering in overlapping time periods. And as Ezekiel is prophesying of this city, the city which was going to be destroyed in 586 B.C., Ezekiel was deported in 597 so uh, there was a, a, a about 11 year gap between when Ezekiel was deported and when the city was finally destroyed, wherein Ezekiel was prophesying. And Ezekiel, he's outside, that, outside Babylon at that, that refugee camp in Kibar. Daniel is inside Babylon at that same time ministering to the king. And Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. A ransacked Jerusalem, not yet, right? At this point it hasn't been ransacked, but it will be. And that's where Jeremiah would be. And Ezekiel tells the, the city of Jerusalem, he says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job lived in the city, God says, I would not pardon the city for their sake. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job, and you know what's amazing to me about this? Daniel was a contemporary. Daniel's reputation must have really gotten around as a man of, of righteousness. Because Daniel had only gone to Babylon some 10 years before Ezekiel started his ministry. And now Daniel is a man of such famed righteousness and obedience before the Lord. Probably also Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had gone through their conflict already. That he had already taken on a status. He'd been placed next to Noah and Job in God's eyes. What, what an amazing testimony. Would to God we would have such. God says, even if Noah, even if Daniel, even if Job, if they were in the city, the city would still not be spared. Only their souls would be spared. Now, these concepts are introduced to us biblically. This concept of, of, of what's going on here, of the character of God as it relates to righteousness and of judgment, all the way back to Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is where we're introduced to the concept. We read this in Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. So God here intends, he says, to inspect the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to see if their sin was as evil as it appeared as the cry unto God of their sin. Yeah, interesting, again, another interesting idea, perhaps we'll study sometime. What is this cry? What is the cry of Abel's blood out of the ground? What is the cry of sin that comes up from the people? But God says, I've heard the cry of sin and I'm going to inspect it to see if it's as bad as I think it is, if it's as bad as the cry says it is. And he says this to Abraham. And, and Abraham responds in verses, we'll read verses 23 through 33. The Bible says, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked? 
and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of fifty righteous, only forty-five righteous in the city. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five... I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be found, there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall be, there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty righteous there. And he spake, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Only one more time. Peradventure, ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned into his place. So uh, here we see a principle, right? As it turns out, there were not ten righteous in the city. Lot and his wife and his two daughters that were unmarried were pulled out of the city. Lot's wife looked back, was turned into a pillar of salt. Only three made it out of that city alive. The rest were destroyed in the judgment of God. Abraham wakes up the next day. He sees smoke rising from the cities and he realizes that ten was not enough. However, what did God do? He removed the righteous from the city before it was destroyed. This is a principle that we see. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in Ezekiel. Established by God's character all the way back in Genesis 18, God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. There are even times where just a few righteous may spare many wicked. We saw in Ezekiel where God says, these three great righteous men, Noah, Job, Daniel, would not spare the wicked in the city of Jerusalem. That's how far they had gone. But there is an instance where we do see, for the sake of one righteous man, God spare perhaps millions of people. That's Moses. God desired to destroy the people for their wickedness. And Moses fell down on the ground and said, God, destroy not this people. And God said, for thy sake, Moses, I will not destroy this people. Moses interceded as a righteous man for the entire nation of Israel and spared the entire nation destruction for their rebellion because of his righteousness standing in the gap. But there are also times, as we see in Ezekiel, as we see in Genesis 18, where regardless of the righteousness of a few, the mercy of God must give way to judgment. And this is the principle that plays out. God says, search the city in Jeremiah. See if there's anyone in the city that you can find who regards judgment, who regards the word of the Lord, and I will spare it. And, and God is quite sure that, he's, that they're not going to find anyone. So we continue reading in verses 3 through 5. O Lord, this is Jeremiah speaking. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, Jeremiah speaking, Surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. I will get me unto the great men and will speak unto them. For they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke. 
and burst the bonds. It's interesting. Jeremiah is actually encouraged by God's words here. When God says, run to and fro throughout the city and see if there's anyone that's righteous and I will spare it, Jeremiah says, okay, I'll go find one of those. And he says, yes. He's very optimistic here. We're going to see this optimism wane as the book goes on. But he's very optimistic here. He says, okay, he says, God will spare if we can find a righteous person. Confident in the truths of God's word. Confident in the character of God. He acknowledges that God has chastened the people. That the people have refused to repent. That they've instead made their hearts hard to God's word. He says, yes, all of that has happened. They've hardened themselves against God's word. They've refused to repent. He says that to this end, they're poor, that they're foolish. These people, they're God's people. They have the oracles of God. They have the priests. They have the prophets. But they have not, they have no knowledge of God. They, They are the poorest of the poor. They're the foolish of the fools. They're so close to the truth, yet so far from it. Very similar to what we talked about last week with the idea of familiarity breeding contempt. So Jeremiah says, well, here's what I'll do. I'll stop going to those people and I'll go to the great men. I'll speak to the great men. I've reached out to the common people. Let them know what the Lord has said. They've rejected me. So instead, I'll go to the nobility. Instead, I'll go to the leaders these are older men. These are the elders in, this, in, in the nation. They've seen the faithfulness of God. They've seen the goodness of God. These normal people, these, these, these people, they've broken the yoke. They've burst the bonds. In other words, they've rebelled against God. They have broken His law. But surely the great men of the land, they'll hear. They'll know. And they'll lead others into repentance. They'll repent. I love Jeremiah's optimism here. So God responds in verses 6 through 9. And he says this. Wherefore a lion out of the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the evening shall spoil them. It's like God picks right up with judgment. Right? <laughs> Jeremiah says these things and God says, okay, let's, let's get back to judgment. Uh, a leopard shall watch over their cities. Everyone that goeth out thence shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many and their backslidings are increased. How shall I pardon thee for this? Speaking to the city, thy children have forsaken me and sworn by them that are no gods. When I have fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were as fed horses in the morning, every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not visit thee, or visit for these things, saith the Lord? And shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? God kind of ignores a little bit of what Jeremiah is saying for now. And we'll see Jeremiah answer his own questions, not necessarily all today, but as, as the text goes on in the weeks to come. God again states that their sin cannot be without consequence. Jeremiah says, I'll go to the great men. God says, go to the great men, but there's still this problem of sin. I have already told you, look throughout the city. Jeremiah says, I'll go to the great men. I'll find one in them. God says, I'm confident you won't. He says, even the beasts of the field will mobilize against the nation because of this wickedness of their sin. God asks in verse 7, how shall I pardon you for this? Speaking of their rebellion, how shall God pardon them for that rebellion? It's so great. The children of Judah have forsaken the Lord. How can God pardon this? God says he fed them to the full and they requited his goodness in feeding them to the full with wholesale rebellion, evil, adultery. As horses which are fed of their masters and they turn their prosperity toward their own wants rather than the wants of the master. If you own a horse and that horse is meant to plow and to pull 
and you feed it, but it doesn't plow and it doesn't pull, it only does what it wants all day, that horse is useless. That horse is, 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 is less than useless because it's costing you money to feed and to care for, and it's not giving you anything in return. God says that's what Israel is to them. God says, shall I not visit for these things? Is there any reasonable reason why a just God would not judge a nation that does the evils that Judah had been doing? So God speaks to the destroyers. In this case, we'll find it's Babylon. He says, go up ye upon her walls and destroy, but make not a full end. Take away her battlements, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously against me, saith the Lord. God says, perhaps to, I would believe Babylon here, to the destroyer, go upon her walls and destroy. But then notice this, this phrase again. It's the same phrase we saw last week, and we'll see it again in verse 18. But make not a full end. There's mercy here. There's mercy to be found. Go and destroy, but don't decimate. Don't utterly destroy. Don't make a full end of them. God's mercy is still to be found. We'll see it again, not just in verse 18, but there's two other times in Jeremiah we see this phrase. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, and Jeremiah 46, verse 28. And we'll come to those, of course, when we get there. Once again, we find hope, we find mercy, we find faithfulness. God is proclaiming destruction, but not a full end upon God's people. There is no full end for Israel as we read the scriptures. Israel are God's people. Jerusalem is God's city. These will have no end. They are eternal. There will be an eternal promise given to this nation, to this city. God is faithful. He will be faithful to Israel. God is merciful. He will be merciful to Israel. They will not have a full end. But for this time, though not a full end, Jerusalem was in God's crosshairs. Jerusalem was going to face an end. And God again lists the reasons. The first beginning in verse 11, because they dealt very treacherously against God. We continue with these reasons in verses 12 and 13. They have belied the Lord and said, It is not He, neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see sword nor famine. And the prophets shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. So the second judgment here, the reason why, the charge against them, the first charge found in verse 11 is that they have dealt very treacherously against the Lord. The second charge is that they have belied the Lord. The Hebrew word here means to be untrue in word or in deed. But even in the translation, this English word is unfamiliar, the word belied. The English word belied means to falsely represent by word or by indication. It's a word that speaks kind of of deceit, to falsely represent yourself either by what you say or by what you indicate. That is to belie someone. And God has been belied here. They have belied the Lord. They have falsely represented themselves to God. They have represented themselves as a people that love the Lord and serve the Lord, but their hearts are far from Him. God tells the nation, you've lied to me. You've deceived me. You said you would obey and you haven't obeyed. You said you would serve and you haven't served. And God reveals the nation's motivation then for lying to God. They've lied to him 
because they say it's not he. Neither shall evil come upon us. Neither shall we see sword or, nor famine. They've lied. They've belied the Lord because they have convinced themselves that God does not care. That God will not bring evil upon them. That they can do these things without consequence. That they would not see sword or famine. That the words of the prophets are empty. That the words of the prophets are wind. That whatever Jeremiah is saying, he's just saying it. It's just what he's saying. Don't believe it. It's just wind. It's just him saying stuff. The word is not in them. That would mean God's word is not in them. And that is what the nation thinks. They may not say these things out loud. They may not say these things openly. But this is what their actions are saying. Their actions are saying, we don't believe God. We don't believe our actions have consequences. We don't believe that God is true. We don't believe that the prophets are true. And God tells them that they're very wrong to think this way as we continue. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Bible says, Wherefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Because ye speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far. O house of Israel, saith the Lord, it is a mighty nation, it is an ancient nation, a nation whose language thou knowest not, neither understandest what they say. So we see some interesting pronoun reference switches going on here. God first says, because ye speak this word, because the nation, the ye, right, that's the second person plural, because the group speaks this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth, that thy is Jeremiah. I will make my words in Jeremiah's mouth fire and this people will be wood and it shall devour them. So Jeremiah is going to speak the words of the Lord and it's going to burn the people up. That's, whoop, let's not knock those off. That's the idea here. That, that the, the word of God is going to consume them. That God is going to take his judgments to the farthest end because no matter how much he calls them to repent, no matter how much he asks them to listen, they simply won't do it. And then we see uh, another change in pronoun reference. I will bring upon you, a na- uh, uh, I will bring a nation upon you from afar, right? Again, you. That's the second person plural in our King James. The group. And then he speaks to the nation again, a nation whose language thou knowest not. Or perhaps to Jeremiah. Either way, they don't know the, the, they don't know the, the language. Neither understand is what they say. God says, the, the fire that I will bring upon you, the judgment I will bring upon you will be an ancient, powerful nation. And we know this to be Babylon from history. Verses 16 and 17. Their quiver is an open sepulcher. This is speaking of this great and ancient nation. They are all mighty men, and they shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. They shall eat up thy flocks and thine herds. They shall eat up thy vines and thy fig trees. They shall impoverish thy fenced cities, wherein thou trusteth with the sword. So this ancient nation is set to destroy. God describes them as having a quiver. A quiver is that which holds arrows as an open tomb. The idea being that they are going to unload, unleash, empty their quiver on the nation. They are going to attack this nation. That they are mighty men. That they are going to destroy. And that not only are they destroyers, but they're really good at what they do. They're really good destroyers. 
They'll consume Judah's harvest, he says. They'll consume the food which should go to their children. They'll consume their livestock. They'll consume their produce, their walled cities, their fenced cities, the things in which they trust. They say, we've got walls. We've got uh, barriers. We've got protections. God says, those cities will become impoverished, will become poor. Everything that you trust in will be taken away because you ought to be trusting in me, and you're not. So God's going to strip from them all of their confidences. He's going to show them how weak all of these things that they're placing their confidence in really are. But, here we go again, verses 18 and 19. Nevertheless, in those days, saith the Lord, I will not make a full end with you. There's mercy again. And it shall come to pass when ye shall say, Wherefore doth the Lord our God all these things unto us? Then shalt thou answer them. Speaking to Jeremiah, this is what Jeremiah will answer. Like as ye have forsaken me and served strange gods in your land, so shall ye serve strangers in a a land that is not yours. If this phrase, I will not make full end with you, doesn't make you love God, there's something wrong with you. This is such a blessed phrase. Yet I will not make a full end with you. God is so merciful. Rather, what we see, however, is God is also just. He will give them the consequences of the actions that they have invited. It is not God, but them who have brought these things about. And this is the point. This is an important point. God says, I will not make a full end with you. We see God's desire for mercy. We see God aching for mercy, but there must be consequences. And God isn't the one that's looking, that's hanging over them, just itching for them to do something wrong so he can lay down the hammer. This is not God. Instead, God is giving them every opportunity to do what's right, but they are begging for his judgment. They are begging for his judgment. Their wrong actions, their injustices, their lies, their hypocrisy. So he says, don't be angry at me. Be angry at yourself. You have served strange God in your land, so I'm taking you out of your land to serve strangers in a land that's not your own. Children, don't be angry at your parents when they give you stated consequences for your actions. Because you chose that action. Civilian, citizen, don't be angry at your government when, you, when they give you the stated consequences for your actions because you chose those consequences by doing the action. Human, don't be angry at God when he gives you the stated consequences for your actions because you chose the action. We do this all the time. Somebody says, don't do that or this will be the consequence and then we do it and then we get angry when we get the consequence. This is very human. But it's silly. It's unreasonable. If there's a stated consequence for an action, if you do the action, you are weighing something in the balance, right? Consequence, action. I am saying that doing the action is more important to me than the possibility of getting the consequence. The the consequence is not as important to me as the action is. So I'm going to do the action under threat of consequence. So then don't get angry if you do the action and you get the consequence. Why? Why would we get angry? We did it knowing that that was the consequence of our actions. Well, generally we get angry because of one thing, and this doesn't work with God, but we get angry because of inconsistency, right? 
the 10 times you went through that speed trap without getting a ticket and the 11th time you got the ticket and now you're angry because, well, I didn't get it last 10 times. Yeah, but you were still speeding, right? So don't get angry for getting what you deserve for the consequence, for the action that you took. This is the idea here. Verses 20 and 21. Declare this in the house of Jacob and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding, which have eyes and see not, which have ears and hear not. So God says, listen closely. I have a message for you. And he calls them a foolish people. He calls them a people without understanding. He says they have eyes, but they don't see. He says they have ears, but they don't hear. In this, God echoes a description which we see several times in Scripture. We see it in Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, Go tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. We see it in Ezekiel 12, 2. Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not, which have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. The Lord himself used it. Matthew 13, verse 14. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Esaias, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. Paul used it in in, uh, Acts 28, speaking to the nation of Israel, verses 25 to 26. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Paul said this before he departed. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Esaias the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing, ye shall not hear, uh, ye shall hear and not understand, and seeing, ye shall see and not perceive. So this is something that we see indicative of Israel's history. God uses it here. And what is the message that God has to this people that see but don't understand? To this people that hear but do not regard? The message is in verses 22 through 24. Fear ye not me? Do you not fear me, saith the Lord? Will ye not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bounds of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail? Though they roar, yet can they not pass over it? But this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in our heart, let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain, both the former and the latter in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. He asks the nation this question, don't you fear me? Do you not fear me? The word fear, we have spoke of it a little bit this morning from our studies, does not simply mean to be terrified of as one might fear a wild animal but rather it's the idea of having respect for the authority, position, and power of another. As one might fear a police officer who, if he's a good officer, only needs to be feared if we are doing evil. God says, the great waves of the ocean have bounds which they cannot cross. Do you not fear me? Though I set the boundaries of the ocean... Do you not fear me, though even the mighty waves cannot get past the boundaries that I've set for them? And yet you are attempting to push past me. Do you not fear me? God asks, 
if the seas themselves, the power of the seas, the sea being one of those forces at that time and in that culture that would have been the most powerful force, right? They travel on the Mediterranean. They travel on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they knew what it was to come up against a great storm, and there's simply nothing you can do. There's, there's all, the seas are powerful, and if they are going to do what they're going to do, there is no resisting them. God says, but they can't resist me. They have no power against me. They cannot defy me. And yet you would dare? Do you not fear the Lord? Do you have no regard for my power, for my authority, for my position? Why doesn't this nation tremble at the thought of rebelling against the God of gods? Why don't we? Tremble at the thought of rebellion. Rebellion is such a wicked thing to God. God hates rebellion so much. Where is our fear? But these have a rebellious heart. They love the rain that God sends, but they don't fear the God who sends it. They love the blessings that God gives, but they don't fear the God that gives them. God has been to them kindness, mercy, and they have requited him by belying him. Verses 25 through 27. Your iniquities have turned away these things. Your sins have withholden good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay wait as he that setteth snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage is full of birds. So are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and waxen rich. They don't fear God, so God withholds blessings. Reminiscent of what God said in Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. God says your iniquities have turned away good things from you. Your sins have withheld good things from you. And then he says that among his people, he particularly decries wicked men, false teachers, who lie in wait to ensnare God's people in evil, to tell them that God will not bring judgment when they're doing wickedness, to confirm them in their wicked choices rather than in the good. Reminiscent of the warning of Peter in 2 Peter 3. We'll talk about that in a little bit in 2 Peter 2. Those who deceive God's people to make merchandise of them. This is the idea. God says their houses are full of deceit like a cage is full of birds. They're great. They are rich. These are the false teachers who get wealthy off of the religious zeal of others and who tell them what they want to hear rather than what God wants them to hear because by telling people what they want to hear, the people are happy and then the people give you a bunch of money. They'll give you a lot of money to keep hearing what they want to hear out of your mouth. So these are false teachers. Their deceits bring them much money, bring them many goods, You'd have Jeremiah on one side saying the city will be destroyed and you have the false prophets and the false priests on the other side saying, nope, God will show mercy. And if the ears of the people are stopped up, who are they going to listen to? Who are they going to want to hear? Who are they going to then support? Thank you, false teachers, for giving us your reports. Here's some money, right? <laughs> Everywhere they looked, there was the fruit of deceits in the form of luxury. These men have become great and waxen rich through their deceits. Their description continues 
to the end of the chapter, we read in verses 28 and 29, these false teachers, they are waxen fat, they shine. Yea, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy do they not judge. Shall I not visit for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? These deceivers are in positions of power and authority. They're wealthy. They're powerful. In some way, God may be answering here Jeremiah's optimistic statement. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, Jeremiah said, I'll go to the great men. I'll tell them. They must hear. And God says, the great men are deceivers. The great men are getting rich off of deceiving these people and telling them that that nothing's going to happen. The great men are the deeper cause of the problem. The great men are confirming these people in their judgment. God says these leaders use their power to condone sin, to excuse sin. They lead the people into more sin because this is what the people want and the people reward them for these allowances. While these judges sit in their, their, their judgment seats and they don't judge the righteous cause of the fatherless. They don't judge the righteous cause of the needy. Instead, they continue to allow the needy and the fatherless to suffer while they glean the wealth of the, rich, uh, of the riches of, of those who would desire to continue to take advantage of the poor and the needy. They sit in their lavish houses and they eat their lavish foods. They're waxen fat and shine, God says. Kind of a disgusting description in many senses. While the poor and the needy, those that need intervention more than anyone, are forgotten and ignored. God says, I cannot ignore this. One of the things you find throughout the scriptures is just how important victims, the innocent, the needy are to God. Just how important those who cannot defend themselves are to God. God defends the defenseless. God's heart is upon the innocent. To that end, God says, how can I pardon when all of these wealthy judges continue to add to their wealth by taking advantage of the poor and the needy? To which the reader might reply, Well, why punish the nation for the deeds of a few? If it's just these wealthy ones that are actually the problem, why punish the whole nation for them? Why punish all for these wicked men who lay in wait and and set snares to catch men? If these people have been deceived, why punish them? Why uh, why, Why punish them all when it's the strong who are preying on the weak? And God answers this question as our chapter finishes in verses 30 and 31. God says, A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. This is a summary. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means. These are the great men. And my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? When we use the word wonderful in our culture, I I, I don't know of of any situation where we would use the word wonderful where it's not a positive thing, right? Well, that's wonderful. That means it's a good thing. But that's not actually what the word means in its, its simplest form. The word wonder simply means it fills a person with wonder. It it makes you wonder at something. Now, good things can make you wonder, but bad things can make you wonder as well, right? Have you ever looked at something and just said, I don't even know what to make of that. 
you could call that a wonderful thing. Something that fills you with wonder, that makes you say, huh? God says a wonderful thing and a horrible thing, so this is a bad wonderful thing, right, is committed in the land. First, you have the prophets prophesying falsely, right? You have Jeremiah over here saying, repent, judgment is a hand, and all the other prophets saying, nah, it's fine. It's a wonderful and horrible thing. The prophets are prophesying falsely. The priests are bearing rule by their means. Jeremiah is saying, do justice. Obey the word of God. And these priests saying, nah, we'll just do it our way. We'll just, we'll, whatever sounds good to us, that, that, that's what we'll do. We'll judge according to what we think is best. We'll judge according to who has the most money, who has the most influence. We'll judge according to what we feel is right. So the Prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means. Injustice is rampant. The innocent are being ignored. But notice this last statement, and this is, this is important. And my people love to have it so. The nation loved it. They loved their false teachers because these false teachers eased their conscience. Because these false teachers eased their shame. Because these false teachers whispered lovely things in their ears about how God's not going to judge them and about how they're doing just fine and they're just misunderstood and God knows their heart and whatever it might be. And they said, good, I can continue sinning. I can continue taking advantage. I can continue doing all of these evil things because the prophets and the priests are telling me it's okay. God says it's a wonderful and horrible thing. The people were, ha were willing to be fleeced, were willing to have their money given to these rich men, happy to exchange their physical goods if they'll be allowed to sin without a fit of conscience. To be told that by these false teachers that their evil is good is worth it to them. They'd rather live in this fantasy world where they can pretend as though God will not judge and they'll be happy to give of their material goods to confirm these people who will allow them to live in their fantasy world than to have the prophet of God who's saying, repent for the judgment is coming, do right, do justice, take care of the innocent, meet the needs of the fatherless and the widows. And this brings us to several points of application this evening. Four points, in fact. Point number one. Remember that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. We first note what we find earlier in the chapter, what we found in Genesis, what we found in Ezekiel. God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. This is an enduring principle that each man will stand and fall for his own sin. Now first, a statement of clarity. This does not mean bad things never happen to good people, right? An evil world... Evil people, evil decisions touch the righteous and the unrighteous alike. If some evil person were to come up to me and hurt me, this is not God's judgment. This is just an evil person doing an evil thing. Often, an evil world and evil people will in fact target the righteous, will they not? To this end, by saying that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked, we are not saying that bad things will never happen to the righteous. We're not saying that the righteous kind of walk in this bubble of immunity from evil. It's not like that. 
Because while God will not allow the righteous to be caught up in his judgment of the wicked, the evil of the wicked touches everyone. The evils of sin, the sorrows of sin, the difficulties. And this is one of the ways that we, we know what is and isn't the judgment of God, right? Because God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. And that's what we're speaking of here. God does not destroy the righteous in judgment of the wicked. It is for this reason that God pulled Lot and his family out of Sodom before he rained fire and brimstone down. It was for this reason that God says in Ezekiel that if Noah and Daniel and Job were in the city, only their souls would be spared, right? Because he would certainly pull them out of the city before he destroyed it. He just would still destroy the city. And by way of application... We understand that God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. We've been talking in our Sunday mornings about uh, the end times, and we talked about various aspects of the rapture. And one of the base foundations that we made in regard to the rapture is uh, timing or no timing, this one thing we know. Beginning, middle, end, this one thing we know. God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. Right? So when does the judgment of God begin? God will take us out before that. God has to take us out before that. God brought Lot out of the city before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. God took Noah into the boat before he started the rain in the 40 days of, 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 and nights of rain. God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. God must, by his nature, redeem us out of the world before he judges the world. Point number two. I'm sorry it's not boldened. It is a privilege of God's people to optimistically hope for God's mercy upon a wicked people. Jeremiah is going to be quite disappointed when he attempts to go to the great men and tell them of God's judgments. They're going to listen about the same way that anyone else listened, which is that they're not going to listen at all. God, in fact, as we mentioned here at the end of the chapter, highlights the fact that the great men are as much of a problem, if not more of a problem, than the people who refuse to listen. But may I just say this, and I, I said this earlier, I absolutely love Jeremiah's optimism here. I love Jeremiah's attitude. It's very reflective in many ways of the attitude of God, which is kind of funny because God's the one that brings him down to earth, brings him back down to this idea that, nope, the great men are a problem too. But... I love so much the confidence of Jeremiah in God's mercies because this one thing Jeremiah knows, that if only someone would repent, God would spare the city, right? Jeremiah hears God's words and Jeremiah says, I've got to find one, just one. Yes, just one because God's mercy is so great. Now, unfortunately, there isn't one. But Jeremiah is so confident in God's mercy. Jeremiah is so optimistic about the capacity of God's word to touch the hearts of people. Now, Jeremiah, what Ger Jeremiah got wrong was the extent to which the wicked people were wicked, the extent to which God, the, these wicked people love their wickedness. But what Jeremiah got right, what we can hope for today, what we can carry with us today is a deep and abiding confidence in the Lord's mercy that we see the sinner we see the evil man. We see the unrighteous. And we may not, depending on who we're looking at, ever think that they will listen to the word of God. But we must maintain an unwavering confidence that 
they might listen to the word of God. And that if they do listen to the word of God, this one thing we know, God's mercy unto salvation will be there waiting for them. It doesn't matter who the wicked person is that you think of. Think of a wicked person on the world stage. Think of a wicked person in your neighborhood. Whoever it might be, they may never give you the time of day if you try to share the gospel with them. But this one thing we know, that if they did listen, and if they did hear, and if they did regard, God's mercy would be there waiting for them. God's salvation would be there waiting for them. That God turns none away. And this is what compels us to go and to tell. Because you don't know what's in the heart of man. You don't know who will say yes and who will say no. The person that might be the biggest lost cause might actually be the one that is right on the edge. Ready to go. Just needs to hear it one last time. Just needs to hear it in the way that you're ready to present it. And maybe, just maybe, it will roll over into salvation. And God, he's waiting. God has never looked at anybody on this earth, in this life, and that man has tried to come to God and say, God, just as I am, I give myself to you. And God say, nope, you're too evil for me. Nope, too much sin. Because all of that sin was paid for on the cross. All of that sin was put upon his son. The mercy is there. The provision is there. I love Jeremiah's optimism. Let's have it in our own hearts. Nobody is a lost cause. And though, though we might knock on a door for a very long time, until a person dies, that door can be opened. And God's mercy will be on the other side of that door till the day that they take their last breath. Point number three. Remember, false teachers still exist, and remember that people still love them. The biblical warning to God's people concerning false teachers, these warnings are very strong. The legacy of false teachers is long. Paul taught this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, these are the false teachers now, and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was, speaking of Janus and Jambres. Paul cites all the way back to Janus and Jambres. Who were Janus and Jambres? Tradition says that these were the two magicians that stood in the court of Pharaoh in the days of Moses and did the same miracles that Moses did at first, turned the, the rod into a serpent, and then Moses' rod ate their two rods, right? And these, these things that Janus and Jambres were able to do, that, that is what the, the tradition tells us who these two men were. They had a form of godliness, did they not? I mean, they threw down their staves and they turned to snakes, they did these miracles too, but they denied the power thereof. They were reprobate concerning the faith. 
so too are these false teachers. Paul warns that in the last days, things will get even worse, that there will be more and more men, lovers of themselves, false teachers will become more prevalent. People will have itching ears desiring to hear only what they want to hear, and they will reward those that will tell them what they want to hear. Peter warns in 2 Peter 2, we've spent a lot of time on Tuesday nights covering it, right, studying it. But there were false teachers also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in their damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious, that word meaning destructive ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Peter goes on to say that these men will make merchandise of the church. So we are warned that these people still exist we are warned as God's church to be on the lookout for them. But I want to remind you as well that there will always be a market for false teachers. Because there will always be people who want an, a, a, a biblical authority to justify them in their sin. They will want to regard God while simultaneously holding on to their sin. And while that is impossible in reality, they will always seek for someone that will confirm them in their sin. They will always seek for someone that will allow them to be carnal and still feel spiritual. There will always be people attached to the church, but not in the church, who want to be in the church, but don't want to follow Christ. So they find teachers who are attached to the church, but not in the church, who claim to represent the church, but don't follow Christ. And then they follow these teachers who don't follow Christ. And these teachers say that the Bible doesn't say what it says. And these teachers say that God isn't who he is. And these people rejoice to hear that the Bible doesn't say what it says and rejoice to hear that God isn't who he is. And they will pay and they will serve and they will give to these people so that these people will continue to tell them that the Bible doesn't say what it says and that God isn't who he is so that they can continue in their sin while simultaneously thinking that they're a part of Christ's church. But it doesn't make any of it true. And the legacy of the false teacher is destruction. We've learned that from 2 Peter 2. We've learned that from Jude. And the legacy of those who follow these false teachers is also destruction. And we learn that tonight in Jeremiah chapter 5. And may God help us to be among those who come out, who identify the error and who come out from it, who separate from it. One final point. You see, but do you perceive? You hear, but do you understand? This final point is simply a call for you to inspect your own heart. One of the unfortunate realities of life is that we don't see our own blind spots. If we saw our own blind spots, they wouldn't be blind spots, right? The nature of a blind spot is that we don't see it. So the thing that we must take for granted is that It's possible to know what we don't see through faith, even if we can't actually see. In other words, it's possible to know what's in our blind spot, not because we can verify what's in our blind spot, but because we can trust the Word of God to tell us we have a blind spot. We can, I hope you have, we can trust not just God's Word, but maybe good friends who are willing to point out our blind spots. What we must rely upon 
is that God's word has told us this is the way we should live. And as we're walking through this life, we say, but I don't see that in my life. But I have good intentions. But the word of God says something different. Yes, but that's not what I perceive, what I understand. And this is what we have to decide. You're driving in a car. And you want to get over in the other lane. And the person in the passenger seat says, there's a car there. And you say, but I don't see it. I look in my mirrors. I look, I don't see it. Yeah, but there's a car there. Yeah, but I don't see it. Now it's time to make a decision. Am I going to trust what I see and don't see? Or am I going to trust one that I understand to have a better perspective? The word of God is to us that perspective. And sometimes it is, it behooves us, though we may not see it, though it may not make sense to trust the word of God because we have a blind spot and not see but not perceive, not hear but not understand, but rather to say, if God's word says it, I'm going to believe it by faith. Faith isn't knowledge. Faith isn't even agreement. Faith actually happens when my life is... When, when I agree with something and it touches my life, when it becomes a belief, when it becomes something that I do, when it becomes an action. So I'm driving. Someone says, you've got someone in your blind spot. And I say, okay, I believe you. And then I get over. I didn't believe them. I said I believed them, but I didn't believe them. Faith is what happens when what I say I believe becomes what I do. It's when my actions touch my words. James says it this way, and since I'm not describing it well, let's let him do it. James 2, verses 14 to 20. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe, and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? You have knowledge? That's good. I hope you do. You're in agreement with what the Bible says? You agree? That's good, too. I hope you do. But do you actually believe it? Is there actually faith? Or are you seeing but not perceiving? Are you hearing but not understanding? If you do believe it, it will touch the way you live your life. That doesn't mean you'll be sinless. That doesn't mean you'll be perfect. That doesn't mean you won't falter, except to say this, that to whatever degree we sin, to whatever degree we falter, it is biblically the degree to which we do fall short in faith. It's for this reason that Jesus' followers, for all the faith that they had, were yet so often called, O ye of little faith. A little faith is certainly enough to be saved. A little faith is even enough to move mountains, Jesus tells us. But in, it is nonetheless a little faith. And the question is this, introspectively, what areas of your life is there a disconnect between what you know, what you agree with, and what you actually do? 
there's a line where you need to be working on your faith. And that's okay. You know, some of you, as we talked about optimistically hoping for mercy, maybe there's someone in here who has never actually accepted Jesus Christ by grace through faith. You know it. You even agree. It's not enough to know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's not enough even to agree that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. To agree that Jesus is God. James says the devils get that far. The devils get that far. Faith, belief, is when it touches you. When you actually say, there is nothing that I can say, nothing I can do, nothing I can earn, nothing I can buy, nothing I can deserve to get myself to heaven. And that's okay because Jesus has already done the work. And you place your full faith and trust. No plan B. All of your eggs in Christ's basket. You put everything on Him and you say, I believe that Jesus must do for me what I cannot do for myself, that only Jesus can do for me. What I cannot do, I cannot get to heaven. I am a sinner. I have fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus has done for me what I cannot do for myself. And that's faith. If I have a plan B, if I've got a safety net, that's not faith. Maybe you're a believer. And you know some things about the word of God. You know what you should do. You know what you shouldn't do. You know what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says about that thing, about what you're doing, what you're you're not doing. And you agree with it. But you're not living it. You're seeing, but you're not perceiving. You're hearing, but you're not understanding. You know, but it hasn't become faith. Faith without works is dead being alone. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. How are you doing this evening? Is it time to reorient? Is it time to have some faith? Some renewed faith? Some new faith? Is it time to take something that you've known that you've agreed with and turn it into something that you actually believe. Maybe it's salvation. Maybe you've never, you've known it, you've agreed with it, but you've never actually accepted it. You've never actually believed it. Christ alone, by grace through faith alone, would today be the day that you'll say, I'm going to just put my faith in Christ. Maybe it's some sin. Maybe it's something that you're neglecting, some negligence. Maybe it's just some anxiety or some fear in your heart, or something that's stripping your joy. And you know what God's Word says. You know that you need to be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let your request be made known unto God. Or you know that you need to ask for wisdom and ask in faith. Or you know these things, but though you know it and though you agree with it, though no, no one could come up to you and if, if you asked, well, don't you believe this? Of course I believe that, you'd say. But though you know it, though you agree with it, It hasn't become faith. If there's something like that this evening and the Spirit of God is taking this thing and putting it on your heart and saying, this is the thing. This is where you're lacking faith. This is the thing where faith falls short. Would you work with the Lord on it this evening? Not be like the people of Israel who seeing don't see and who hearing don't hear but allow that which the Word of God has said to become that which we truly believe. And if you believe it, it will 
touch your life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.